All right. To that, let's turn and let's be in Exodus, uh, the second half. Of, this is part two of a message on fit to serve. How are we ready to serve the Lord? And we looked at the genealogy that was captured in the first part of this text. That was Exodus 6, 10 through 27. And we're going to revisit this text, looking in particular, starting in verse 28 of chapter 6 that we just read into chapter 7, verse 7. But this is a text really about getting Moses ready, getting him ready to serve. And as you think about your life and you consider that question, are you ready? Are you ready to serve? Are you ready to do really anything uh, about a whole host of things? For I confess in my youthful pride and ignorance, I've thought many times, I'm ready for this, when I really had no idea what I was doing. And two accounts of my life manifest that most. And let me tell you the first. The first one is marriage. I thought I was ready for marriage. I was 22. I looked like I was 12. (laughs) And I'm not 24 now, and I won't comment about that, but anyway. And yet, was I ready for this? Well, what have I learned? God is most gracious. He was gracious to give me Aaron. Aaron is very gracious. That's been evident over these nearly 20 years. But what were we thinking, basically, is as I look back, I was such a goofball, a goon. What did she... Anyway, the, the, <laughs> the joke is that my marriage verse was from 2 Thessalonians, let them believe a false delusion, or let, them, let a false delusion come over them to believe what is false. And um, I think that happened, and she married me anyway. Anyway, that's not in my notes. We'll need to strike that from the live feed. I'm just saying. But the point was, is I thought I was ready for marriage, getting into that, but was I really ready to take that responsibility to, to lead another, to cherish another, to serve and sacrifice and love as I'm called to in the gospel? like that in marriage? And even as I look at that call now, you go to Ephesians 5, I think to myself, am I even ready for that now? But here's the thing. There's some things you can, by God's grace, grow into, right? Well, that was in the first case. The second case in my life is an occasion where when it happened, I knew I wasn't ready. I suspected I wasn't ready, but then when it happened, I knew I wasn't ready. And it was when I was lying in a hospital bed, listening to my firstborn son breathing in the bassinet right beside me. And I just felt this weight. I'm not ready for this. And I thought to myself, literally, where is the instruction manual for this? Uh, I'm that guy. Like when I get a new piece of equipment, I read through all the instructions, and then I try and operate it. And, I, and I'm thinking, there, there was no manual for this. How do we do this? How is this supposed to work? Can we put him back for a few days like, until I can figure this out? But again, God is most gracious. Aaron is most gracious. And my kids, too, have been quite gracious as they've, I tried to learn what it means to be a father. Though we might not feel ready for a number of things that God puts before us and for what He calls us to, God in His plan says, you might not feel ready, and in reality, of yourself, you might not be ready at all. But here's the thing, I've called you to serve me in this, and this is what is determinative. And He's saying, in that, trust me, depend upon me, let me use you, work through you for my glory, and not yours, because you weren't ready for this. 
then, when you see you're not ready, then you're fit to serve. And that's what we see in this account a couple times. It comes out of us, or comes out of the text, as we see Moses say, say literally, I have uncircumcised lips. I'm unfit to serve. I don't have the right words. I'm not the right guy for this. And the Lord gives two reassurances to him in this text. That he would see that fitness to serve comes from two things. One, this realization that you first have that you are not fit unless Christ helps you. And then second, it's the reassurance, even though you're not fit of yourself, God has a plan to use you anyway. Well, how is it? How does He give us the reassurance? How does He equip us? Well, we saw last time, we need to review God's grace found among His promised people. This is what God provides for us, His grace, His promise. He casts us on His gracious power as the only way that we could be fit to serve. So to begin with, we opened the text and we saw that Moses, he's rather quite discouraged. He's not at all excited about his involvement anyways and what God's plan is for rescuing and redeeming his people. And not only is Moses discouraged, but now the people of God are really discouraged. They think this is going to be horrible. This couldn't have been God's plan. Moses, you must have heard God wrong. I don't think you took this in right. You must have misheard him. Moses, you're obviously not the guy. It's not supposed to be like this. You're not the one to serve, right? Well, the Lord says, no, he is the right person. And where does he go to encourage Moses ultimately in this? He should have remembered his genealogy. That's where we all go when we need encouragement in the Scriptures. We go to 1 Chronicles and those opening chapters to get the long list of unpronounceable names. Why? Why does he go to a genealogy here to encourage what would be Moses looking back and to encourage the people of God, us, as we hear we're supposed to serve God now? How can we be fit to do that? Well, what did we see when we looked at Moses' family tree that comes from the third son of Jacob from the tribe of Levi? We saw that they were a people passed over. The blessing of being the king of the firstborn passed over Levi and went to Judah. Because, why? Because Levi was a brutal murderer of the Shechemites. And yet, even though they were passed over for Levi's savage cruelty, God wasn't done with Levi or done with Levi's descendants, such that he chose Moses But here's the thing. He didn't choose Moses because Moses was so great. He didn't choose Moses because Moses' faith was so strong. He didn't choose Moses for anything in Moses. He chose Moses because God's promise is strong, because His promise is steadfast and immovable. See, God has a plan, and He has a people, and He has promises to bless this people so they can bless the world. And that plan doesn't waver even when His people mess up, even when they are weak, wholly inadequate for this great task. His grace comes to make you fit for service. And we saw that last time. Now we turn to see the next encouragement, and it's this. Recall God's power found in His promised Word. So we see the purpose and plan of God to show grace to His people, but second, what we find is that His Word is given to us, and in it is an inherent power to equip you for this work. 
That's the second reassurance that arises out of this text. How could you ever be fit to serve? How could you ever be used of God? Well, it comes by this word. But before we get there, before we can see that, we need to rehearse Moses' own discouragement, his own objection about his fitness for this role. So let's pick it up in our text proper now, chapter 6, verse 28 of Exodus. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Now, we considered last time this phrase, uncircumcised lips. This means really that his lips are unfit. They're unuseful. They're not up for this task of speaking on God's behalf. In other words, God, you've got the wrong guy. I've tried this. It didn't work out so well. I'd been on the run then for some 40 years. You should just find somebody else. And so now the Lord says, no, Moses, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to encourage you and strengthen you for this work. But how does he do it? He gets the focus again off of Moses and gets it back on God. That's where he's ultimately, this is what's happening. He's directing Moses' attention off of himself, off his off of his inadequacies and failures, and putting them right back on where things lie. How is this going to work? It's not going to work because of you, Moses. It's going to work because of me through you. And he's done that to first show he is merciful to this people, but now he's showing it because he gives Moses his word. This is how your lips can be clean, how your lips can be prepared. It's not going to be by how persuasive you can be or how creative your illustrations or stories are. This is about, God says, about what I am doing and how I will do it through my word. So just open your mouth. This is your task. And he says, my powerful word will do the rest. And we see it in this way first, because God's word gives the power to speak for God. God's word gives the power to speak for God. Consider how astoundingly powerful this truly is. Look at verse 1 now of chapter 7. So again, Moses objects, I got unclean lips, or uncircumcised lips. Here's what the Lord says. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you, ESV reads here, like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. That's crazy. I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And actually, more literally in the Hebrew, it's I've made you as God to Pharaoh. There's no like there. He's having Moses stand in as God on earth to the king of really the largest nation or most powerful nation in the world. You're going to be God to him. It's literally how it reads. Now, why do our English translations add something like the word like? Well, it's so you don't misunderstand. He's not literally going to deify Moses as if he can take this human creature and make him God. That's not God's plan. But what's he doing? Moses will so represent God to Pharaoh, he will stand in God's place. Such that the word that comes from Moses will be the very words of God. Moses, you're going to play my role. You're going to be God to him. 
You're going to be my authoritative mouthpiece of the Word of God. When you speak, God says, it's actually me speaking through you. Yeah, it's the same way in an illustration like of a diplomat maybe today or an ambassador. They speak on behalf of the king or the ruler or in our case, the president. It's like the press secretary. Moses, you're going to be the press secretary for God. You're going to speak God's mind on the issue before Pharaoh. He's God's rep. And that means, though, then, he carries with him God's authority. Well, how can that be? How can a mere man stand in God's place and really represent God? What's it going to be about Moses, or how's Moses going to change so that he can do this, that he can speak for God or represent God in this case? Is his face going to start glowing and shining? And Pharaoh's going to go, whoa, this is special? Or is Moses going to get really tall? And his voice going to thunder? Oh, he must be speaking for God now? No. Interesting thought. But no. How will he represent God here? The answer comes in verse 2. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. How is it that Moses will so represent God to Pharaoh? Well, it's this. When Moses will speak all that God has commanded him. Once Moses becomes a channel, a conduit, a passageway for the word of God to go to Pharaoh, that's when he will carry and be God to Pharaoh. He will be the unadulterated voice of God, bearing God's full authority. Why? Because now he speaks God's word directly. No additives added. You speak for me. You represent me. It's as if I'm standing there speaking myself, but through you. You are God to Pharaoh. Now, this challenges Pharaoh in particular. Because Pharaoh thinks he's the God around here. He's the God of Egypt. We know from the historical sources of the time and area that the, the Pharaohs, the king of Egypt, saw themselves as divine. They saw themselves as the very sons of the gods who spoke for the gods and ruled for the gods. Maybe the gods' representatives themselves. He was the God of Egypt. And so often we think we are our own God of our own Egypt, don't we? We are the authority over our own little world, which means we get to determine what we like and what we don't like. We get to say for us what's good and what's bad, such that when we have our own ideas, because we're our own little God, and then the Word of God actually comes, it's a train wreck. We collide into the immovable force of the authority of God. He challenges our supposed right to govern ourselves, that we might try and discount it. We might even try and say, no, that's not right, that's not accurate because of the human source it's coming from. What does that guy know? But no, when someone speaks God's Word, God speaks. 
with full authority. We must obey Him, which means we must heed His Word. That's the astonishing power of God's Word. It equips us, empowers us, actually to speak for God with His full authority. And that's the case here with Moses. Moses, your Word is as good as if God was speaking on earth, on boots on the ground, right to Pharaoh, and must be obeyed. And the same goes for us today when we will open our mouth and speak the Word of God. God's authority comes as like a seal authenticating our own words as much as they are the words of Scripture. And that's especially true for pastors and church leaders. Let me clarify what I mean by this as a bit of an aside. But I trust you realize, as one of the pastors here in this assembly, I carry very little authority of my own, that is, by the inherent office as an elder or the teaching pastor. No, my authority derives from this book. I lead or exercise authority only to the degree I preach or teach or exhort or minister by the book. Because this is where the authority lies. I have no real inherent spiritual authority of myself. It all is derivative of the Word of God. Such that you should not obey any so-called spiritual authority just because they say so. Or just because they have some position or some tradition or some apostolic succession. No, you obey them because they speak the Word of God and only that. To the degree they speak it. See, the point is, in Christ, brothers and sisters, we are all brothers and sisters together. We are fellow heirs of the gospel. But this position as your teacher only gives me any say or authority to the degree I speak God's Word. But when I do, or whoever is preaching or teaching the Word of God, when they do, that means we all, me, you, and all of us, must obey. Because it is the Word of our God. We don't obey whoever's teaching or preaching, but we obey our Christ who rules His church through the taught Word. I love how this truth is captured by the great reformer John Calvin when he says this, Let the pastors boldly dare all things by the Word of God. Let them constrain all the power and glory and excellence of the world to give place and to obey the divine majesty of this Word. Let them enjoin everyone by it, from the highest to the lowest. Let them edify the body of Christ. Let them devastate Satan's reign. Let them pasture the sheep. Let them kill the wolves. Let them instruct and exhort the rebellious. Let them bind and loose thunder and lightning if necessary, but let them do all according to the Word of God. And that is not only true for pastors, brothers and sisters. That's true for all of us, as any Christian would carry the gospel and speak God's Word. It's as good as God speaking the Word right through us. That's why Paul can say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, representatives of Him. God even making His appeal through us, he adds, we then implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We can speak and rep for God as we carry the gospel. 
That is even God's own call coming to the sinner, beckoning them to find mercy at Christ's feet. He has entrusted you with the greatest news in all the world. Are you fit to be His servant? You have His authority as much as you preach the gospel. So we are called now, open your mouth. Let them hear the voice of God. He's calling sinners to come. Furthermore, God's Word has the power to actually accomplish God's plan. God's Word has the power to speak for God, but it also has the power to accomplish His very plan and purpose and promise. Because again, looking at this, I mean, it's astounding to think that we could speak for the Almighty God. How is that possible? How could that ever happen? What business do we have representing God? I mean... Am I not going to mess this up somehow? In the first place, he reassures Moses, no, you won't. As long as you faithfully get my word out, you're good. But you see, more than that, because the word of God is that strong. It is mighty. It is powerful. How could it be then that my words would ever carry that kind of power? Well, here here again is the point. Your words can't, but His very words, even through you, can. And get this, they will accomplish all of His purpose. He just calls us to open our mouth and say it. But here's the thing. Even though His word will accomplish all of His purpose... His purpose may not always be, be what you expected or initially wanted. And especially true as God's Word comes here to Pharaoh. Here's what he might have expected. Because God had told him good promises. Like, Israel's about to get out of Egypt. And then God has told Moses, and I got a message for you to go tell Pharaoh is to let the people go. And so, God has a plan, get people out of Egypt, and He has a powerful word, let the people go, let's put those together, and what's going to happen? It's going to be like a, the word spoken to Pharaoh, right? It's going to be like a key, a a magic word that's going to unlock the chains of the Israelite slaves and and let them out of Egypt. I just got to go speak the word, open sesame, let's get God's people out of here, right? Not exactly. Because now we look at verse 3 of chapter 7, where Yahweh clarifies how His plan will work. You're going to speak my word. You're going to have my full authority, Moses. But, verse 3, Exodus 7, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Wait, what? That doesn't sound like your plan. That doesn't sound like your powerful word. What do you mean Pharaoh's not going to listen to me? I'm speaking your authoritative word. How can he resist that? Yes, you will speak my word. But here at the beginning of verse 3, we note God says, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. The implication being, that means he won't listen and he's not going to let you go. And that's, I think, the most surprising part about this is to see that even with God, this is intentional. God designed it to happen just like this. As if to say, well, if I didn't harden Pharaoh's heart, maybe he would have acquiesced and bent the knee and let God's people go. 
especially in view of the mounting signs and miracles that God's going to devastate Egypt by. Of course, he's alluding to those coming plagues that will come upon Egypt. We see in the second half of verse 4. Look at it there. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. But Pharaoh's not going to listen. He's not going to obey. He's not going to heed this word. He's not going to let them go. Even after I add plague after plague, sign after sign, such like no one has ever, ever seen. And he's still not going to believe. Why not? Because I hardened his heart in unbelief. And then we have to ask, how is that fair? How can God blame or judge Pharaoh in Egypt for Pharaoh's hard heart, a heart that God Himself made hard? And that's a great question, and I confess, it's not one I'm going to fully answer today. First of all, there's mystery there. I confess that. Second, as we study through the book of Exodus especially as we come to Exodus chapter 9, uh, th- those issues become more and more clear. So the Lord gives us time, Lord willing, we'll come to that and we'll address it in more detail there. But suffice it for now to affirm these two truths that come out of this text. First, even as we read about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we're going to find that Pharaoh will harden his own heart against God and against God's Word. Just as one example, listen here to Exodus chapter 8, verse 32. But Pharaoh... Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Here's the point. Pharaoh is no mere puppet. He is not used against his will or his desire. In some sense, there's there's a harmony here between God hardening, but then also Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But second, and this is really the truth underlined in our text here, God's will and promised plan is being perfectly accomplished even as His very Word, God's Word, comes from Moses' mouth. The Word that comes from your mouth, Moses, that's my Word, it will accomplish all my will even if it means Pharaoh's heart will be hardened or even by means of his heart being hardened. For it is God's Word itself that comes and hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's the response to that word that makes Pharaoh go, "Uh uh-uh, not going to do it. And it's that hardened heart that's entirely resistant to the Lord's plan that's going to be the reason why God increases His signs and wonders and continues to further devastate Egypt. He will then be able to show the greatness of His power. Why? Because Pharaoh's continued resistance. We've made an analogy before, but it's like this. If Pharaoh were a softy, you know, a coward, and just caved at Moses' first word about getting God's people out of there, would you have come to know how strong and great his power is? That is God's. No. He'd be a pushover. God would have run right over him. But because Pharaoh hardens himself, he creates a resistance that the Lord is going to break down and run over. Let me make an analogy here. You could say you work for DuPont, and you're all jazzed about Kevlar, okay? And you tell me how strong Kevlar bulletproof vests are. And to show me that, at first, you, you know, you took a bulletproof vest, and you put it on like a dummy, and you're going to show how strong it is. And to do so, you just, you know, you got these really threatening wads of paper 
and chucked them at the bulletproof vest. Uh, they wouldn't do anything, in case you were curious. Okay? Or you took out then the Nerf guns with the little foam Nerf bullets and start shooting at the bulletproof vest. Didn't do anything. And I'm like, of course they didn't. That wouldn't have hurt me without a vest on. But then you took a 57 Magnum from 10 feet away, take a shot at the bulletproof vest, and the dummy is unscathed. What have I then learned? Kevlar is strong stuff. But I would have never have known it. You hadn't upped the power to show the resistance. In a similar way, Pharaoh's resistance creates the opportunity for God to display how great his power really can be. But it only happens first because his heart becomes hard. Because what is this about, ultimately? He tells us here in verse 5. What is God's plan? What is God's purpose for this? Why is his heart hardened? This is all so they can know truly who God is. Verse 5. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. They will know God. He will resist. God will show the greatness of His power, at least in a small way, honestly. Then they will come to know there is no one like the Lord God. And remember where this began. When Moses first came to Pharaoh and they brought the message, what was the first thing that Pharaoh said back? Here it is. It's Exodus 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? Who's Yahweh? That I should obey His voice and let the people go. I don't know the Lord, he said, and moreover, I'm not going let to pe- let God's people go. But after this, Pharaoh, I will make you bend the knee and you will know. And the nations will know. And my people will know. There is no one like the Lord God. You will come to know there was no one like Israel's Redeemer. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. In other words, God will accomplish all of His will just as He said, and He will do it by His Word. His Word will work and do the will. Only at times, sometimes it will soften the heart. And some will then believe. They will humble themselves and they will obey the gospel. At other times, hearts will become hard. They will resist. And even in that, the Lord will work His perfect will, accomplishing all that He promised and all that He wanted. And the analogy has been well said. His word in that way is like the sun. Before wax, it can melt it and make it soft. But before clay, it'll make it hard as rock. It's the same sun, the same heat. It has different effects on different hearts, all by His plan. But most specifically here, His word goes forth that He's going to bring people out of Egypt. But more than that, He's going to do it in such a way that the world will know how glorious the Lord is. But all of that will be wrought by His powerful word. And that's still true as we speak God's word today. Such that as much as Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, notice, he'll talk about one message and two different responses. The message doesn't change. The response does. This is it, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel message, is folly to those who are perishing. They see it as foolishness. But those who are being saved, what do we see? It is the power of God. It's the same message, the same gospel we preach, but divergent responses based on the heart. 
They hear it quite differently. The unbelieving hears about a crucified son of God, and they call that divine child abuse. They call it evil. How would God ever do that? But those who believe when we hear about the gospel, what do we hear? We hear our life. We hear of the mercy of God that would come and suffer for us. We have a great salvation. Praise be to Lord Jesus. It's the power of God to save our souls, but it's that same message. But why do not all believe? Why do not all come and see? Why do you not all see how, how glorious the cross is and how it's mercy to any sinner who will come? How can they not see that? Why would they see it as folly? Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 1.19, and he says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Why do you not all believe? Because God is intent on shaming the wise. God is intent on humbling those who stand in their pride and say, the gospel is foolishness. He is intent on shaming the philosopher and all of his supposed rationales and insights. He's intent on shaming the evolutionist about all of his supposed theories and evidences. He's intent on shaming the PhDs and the influencers who rest and boast in their own powers of wisdom, of intellect, maybe even their own righteousness. He will shame them all until you humble yourself and bow before the wisdom of God and trust Him. Not yourself, not your wisdom, for there is no rescue or salvation there, but alone in Christ's cross. All the more, doesn't this give us the reassurance that we need, the boldness we need to serve? That even we could be fit to serve and speak this powerful word. We just need to open our mouths and let His powerful Word do all the rest. And it's true. We don't know what His Word's going to do. Some hearts it might harden. Or by God's mercy, it'll be that life-giving Word that causes one to be born again, clinging to Christ. But which is it going to be when we open our mouth? We don't know. But that's not up to us. That's not our work. That's not our task. Frankly, it's not even in your power to do any of that. You can't save people. You can't change their hearts. You can't argue people into the kingdom, really. But again, that's not up to us. That's not our job. What's our task? Open your mouth. Speak the Word of God. And let His Word do the rest and accomplish all of God's will. Furthermore, we see God's power in this way. It has the inherent power to actually prepare God's servants to be fit for ministry. This is what Moses himself will now learn, that he is fit, he is ready, he's an able servant because he is submitting himself to the Word of God. Such that as we look now at the final two verses of our passage, this is what we see. Verses 6 and 7. But Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now that's interesting, isn't it? They were pretty old by this time. Actually, Moses, who ends up writing Psalm 90, notes that those who live to 80, they live a long life with strength. And then they die. 
Well, Moses is apparently on death's door, it seems. He's at 80. I think he could look back on his life and say, the last 40 years, my prime maybe, they were squandered wandering around in the wilderness, lost. Why, God? What were you doing? Well, what had happened? What caused the wilderness wandering for him? He tried doing things his own way, didn't he? Murdered the Egyptian, ran off fearful from Pharaoh, scared. He was a failure, not at all redeeming God's people. Wandering around in Midian as a nobody, right? But why did it take 40 years? What did he have yet to learn? What now could define him and make him a fit servant for God? For both Moses and Aaron, it's right there in verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did what God told them. They did just as the Lord commanded them. They're finally ready to say, I'm just going to do what you say. What does that look like? That's faith. I trust you. I'm not going to trust my wisdom. I'm not going to trust my arguments. I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to adapt the message anymore. I'm not going to detest about it. I'm not going to detract from it. I'm not going to sugarcoat it either or anything. I'm just going to speak your pure, unadulterated word. They find they are ready to obey the word themselves and speak it just as it is. Recall the beginning of chapter 5, again, when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh And remember, Pharaoh at the beginning didn't like the message. We saw that. Who's the Lord? I'm not going to heed that. And so what did Moses and Aaron do? They then so obviously tamper with the message. You remember that? They're like, oh, well, didn't we tell you God might kill all of us and bring on a plague or kill us by the sword? If you don't let him go, you know, he's a pretty mean God. Moses and Aaron made all that up. Why? seems like they were trying to make God seem fiercer, more threatening than he really is in a sense. You know, let's spice it up a bit. That'll really persuade Pharaoh. Either way, Pharaoh wasn't impressed, so it didn't work that way. But more importantly, neither was the Lord impressed. But now, they're ready to be faithful servants. Why? Because they're ready to let the Lord do the talking. They just need to not add anything, not shy away from anything. They just need to speak and lay it plain. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And so here it is, the power of God's Word itself to prepare and equip its messengers to carry and be fit ministers. Because get this, dear Christian, we are all ministers for Christ's sake in one way or the other. We're not just talking about pastors. We're not just talking about elders and missionaries and evangelists. Ephesians 4 talks about this. We are all here as the saints of the people of God being equipped for the work of ministry, which is principally to build up the church and get the word out to the world. And we're all to do it. Well, how do we get ready? Well, one, you have to first receive the message. And then two, live out the message. Be conformed to the message. Then you are fit and ready to serve the Lord. Because let me remind you, it's an exhortation here from a familiar verse that we often turn to. This is 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. Many of us know this verse. We turn here often when we're studying the doctrine of the Bible. 
to understand the inspiration of God's Word, the infallibility of God's Word, the inerrancy of God's Word. There's probably no better text than you can turn to than 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. But do you remember what comes right after verse 16? Well, of course, verse 17. But do you remember what it says? Let me remind you. You know this part. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This inscripturated book, text on a page, this is the very words of God. It's like it came right from God's mouth. It will be as God speaking to you, if I can put it that way. And it's breathed out by God, and so then it's profitable, he says, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is what we teach from. This is how we correct. This is how we point people to the gospel. This is how we reprove. We go to the book. But what does verse 17 say? It's profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, and that for every good work. God's Word, the Scripture itself, claims as it comes right from the mouth of God to also be the way to make you ready to be fit for God, to serve Him. That is not merely do we take God's Word to teach others and correct others. That's true. But what else is it good for? For teaching you, correcting you, conforming you, and completing you. Completing you so much that you are able to do every good work He's called you to do. Whatever He's exhorted you to. So this means, this is the end of all excuses. Of all the I can'ts, I'm not good enough, I'm just not ready. It's the end of all that. Why? Because you have the key to useful service to Christ. You have the message, and you have the message to conform you or to change you. So then the word is, we must, of course, speak the word, but do you yourself hear the word? And, of course, I'm thinking something beyond, do you read your Bible every day? Though that's very good to do. Something beyond listening to sermons, because most of you are listening to one right now. Or Scripture memory. Again, very good. But more than that, do you not just hear the message, but do you submit to the message? Do you let the message rule you? Or do you try and rule it, thinking you are God over it? In other words, will you let yourself, allow yourself to be reproved by that word, corrected by that word? For until then, you will not prove a useful or fit servant for your king. Earlier in 2 Timothy, Paul says this. He says, thinking of the church, using this analogy of a great house, he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Well, what's going to distinguish them? Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable... He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful, fit for the master of the house. And then he adds this, ready for every good work. How is that? Well, we saw it in 2 Timothy 3.17, because he has been conformed by the Word of God. He's been shaped by the Word of God. 
And so then he's been equipped by the word of God, not only for the content of his message, but for the word that conforms and changes his own heart, such that we're ready, like Moses and Aaron here, again back to Exodus 7, verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And then they are ready to be fit, useful servants for him. May that be said of us, Grace Bible. Let's pray for that.